You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Grace. And today we're going to be talking about the story of Dakota James, who went missing in 2017 in the Pittsburgh area. Just to head it off, I got a lot of information from the podcast Two Mysteries, Three Rivers, which was produced by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and created by Michael Fuoco and Ashley Murray. I mean, this is this was a highly publicized case, especially in the region of Pittsburgh. And there's quite a bit of information out there. There's different documentaries. I got also got information from Smiley Face Killers, the Hunt for Justice series. Dakota was featured on the very first episode. So there's quite a bit of information out there. And I really suggest that if you want to dive deeper into this, that you check out that podcast and that documentary. I'll obviously put the information on the blog. But this is kind of a high-flying overview. I'm going to go through it. Not super fast, but there's a lot of information out there. So if you want to dig deeper, check those out. But yeah, let's just get into it. Dakota James was born June 21st, 1993. Dakota James was born June 21st, 1993. He was the second child of Pam and Jeff James. And he was originally from Franklin, Maryland, which isn't too, too far outside of Baltimore. He was smart, outgoing, and athletic. He was actually the swim team captain at Brunswick High School. He was friendly. He had a good group of friends. He was actually, at least in high school, nicknamed Cody. I am still going to refer to him as Dakota because it seems like that was kind of a high school nickname. But yeah, that's what they called him in high school. Um, He came out as gay at 18, and his parents were very accepting, but they feared for his safety as an openly gay man, especially when he headed to the city. He was a, at the time of his disappearance, a grad student at Duquesne University. He had a Bachelor of Science in Economics from West Virginia University. He had graduated in 2015, and then he went to Duquesne And then after he was done at Duquesne, he was going to be headed to law school. I'm not exactly sure where he wanted to go, but I do know that he wanted to be a lawyer. What was his, I mean, this is going to have nothing to do with the case, but just out of curiosity, what was his program at Duquesne? Do you know? I mean, I know it was grad school, but like a master's of... I want to say it was economics, but... You know what? I'm not totally sure. I I was wondering maybe if it was like poli sci or something that would kind of bridge the gap from economics to law school, if that makes sense. But I mean, I guess you could just be an econ and then go to law school. Right. I'm just seeing if I can find it real quick. But if not, it may have just not been listed in the sources that I was looking at. Or was he in law school at Duquesne? No, it doesn't seem like that was it. He was going to be going to law school afterwards. Gotcha. Yeah, sorry about that. 
Um, he was living in the north side of Pittsburgh. He was working in logistics for a Pittsburgh trucking company. I'm not exactly sure which company, but he just seemed to have that really intelligent, logical mind. He was definitely focused and organized. But he also knew how to have fun. He wanted to travel. His parents describe him as having a dry, sharp wit. And he loved to run, bike, and socialize. And he loved his family. And his mom describes him as an old soul. Like he just, I get that you describe people who have passed in the best light. But he just, he really seems like someone I would want to hang out with. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And he was just kind of making the most of Pittsburgh. I mean, there's so many places to bike around Pittsburgh and so many places to explore. And he was just trying to do that. He really seemed to like it there. It seemed to be going well for him. So just to give you some background to maybe help you like understand the story and the places in the story a little bit better. A quick note on Pittsburgh rivers and bridges. The three rivers that run through Pittsburgh are the Monongahela. And luckily, locals just call it the Mon, which they said in the podcast. And then I was like, I don't want to sound like an idiot. So I asked my sister that lives there. I was like, do people really call it the Mon? She's like, yes. I'm like, thank God, because I don't want to say Monongahela (laughs) a thousand times in these these episodes that I'll be doing. It's kind of like in Eastern PA having the skook instead of saying skookle repeatedly yeah yeah so much easier yes so the mon is one of the only rivers that runs north and it runs from west virginia to pittsburgh and then we have the allegheny river which runs from north central pa to new york and back to pittsburgh and then we have the ohio river and that's where those two rivers meet um i actually have the map of the three rivers toward the bottom of my document just so you can see and I'll definitely post them on the blog it just makes it a little bit easier to visualize but yeah both the Mon and the Allegheny run into the Ohio River which is very wide and long and that actually flows to Illinois and it is the largest tributary to the Mississippi River so just to give you a little bit of background and also as far as the number of bridges in the city Pittsburgh is second in the world only to Venice when it comes to number of bridges. So I was doing some research and I had a picture pulled up and Ben was behind me and he was like, oh, I think we've gone over that bridge. I'm like, how can you tell? How do you have any idea? Was it a bridge from Pittsburgh? It was. It was. Yeah. Yeah, but even when I'm like visiting my sister and we're going somewhere over a bridge, like I can't even recall which bridges I've been over. I just have no idea. Well, to get literally anywhere in Pittsburgh, you have to take roughly 784 bridges. Yeah, exactly. To be fair, you probably have been on every bridge. Yeah. So I'm just going to get into the timeline of events for the day that Dakota went missing and then what followed. So the morning of Wednesday, January 25th, 2017, Dakota spoke to his mother on the phone. His mother's name is Pam. She comes up pretty often. Both his parents have been huge advocates for him. So I spoke to Pam on the phone and the conversation is about regular things, classes he's taking, his job. He had just gotten a bonus at his job. I guess it was for like the first time in his life he'd ever gotten a bonus. So he was really stoked about that. And 
just everything seemed to be going really well for him. So then at 5 p.m. that evening, Dakota went to happy hour with some co-workers at Bar Louie in Southside Station Square. And that is also on one of the maps that I have at the bottom. I just tried to point out um, locations where he was that night. So they all go to happy hour, all the co-workers. And then at 7.30, Dakota and a new female co-worker who had only been working there for a couple weeks, they kind of broke off. I don't know if the other co-workers went home, but they did not continue the night with them. It was just Dakota and this female co-worker. Um, they boarded the tea to go downtown and they went to Diamond Market Restaurant in Market Square and they left there around 9.30 p.m. So after this, they go to the 9 41 saloon for one hour. I also have this marked on the map, but they were apparently asked to leave because of drunken behavior, specifically of Dakota. And there was some sort of verbal altercation with the bartender. I don't know anything else about that. I'll talk about it in a little bit, but there's no surveillance video from inside the bar. So I'm really not sure. It just said verbal altercation. It doesn't seem like punches were thrown or anything like that, but Dakota was asked to leave due to his behavior behavior. After that, they went to Images, which is just or was just a couple doors down from the saloon. Uh, it seems like the saloon is permanently closed. I don't know if Images is still there or not, but that was just a couple doors down. And they were apparently also asked to leave due to Dakota's behavior. So I guess he was just, from what I've read, it just seemed like he was getting a little rowdy. And he had been drinking, you know, in getting theory since 5 p.m. Now, this is a Wednesday night. So, okay. He was supposed to work the next day, but I mean, I we've all had those nights, I'm guessing, where we just say screw it and we stay up too late or we drink too much, even though we have stuff to do in the morning. So, I mean, can't really judge. <laughs> just seem to be Not blowing off some steam. Yeah. Uh, and maybe even celebrating, you know, that bonus he was getting or... Sure. Who knows? So both Dakota and the female co-worker showed up on an outdoor surveillance uh, footage, like right outside of the images bar around 1130 p.m. headed toward Wood Street Tea Station. So if you look at the map, it's the second one. If you can kind of see, you can kind of see where I marked the 941 saloon and so they were walking left from there, like toward the T station is to go left down. And that's Liberty Avenue, even though you probably can't. I don't think it shows that on the map what um, street it is, but that's Liberty Avenue. So they walked left down that street. So the co-worker requested an Uber after they'd been walking for a short distance. And Dakota, who was probably headed toward his home on the north side, which is across the Allegheny River from where they were, not very far, just across the river. He was caught on surveillance video in Katz Plaza around 11.45 p.m. and then was not seen again. He was probably headed down Scott Place Alley, which I'll kind of explain in a second. And just note that his parents viewed the video footage in its entirety, but only one still was released to the public, which I'll, um, I'll post as well. I have that on the document here. So what, and you may not know this, what was the purpose or outcome 
of showing the footage to his family? Was it just to confirm that it was him? Basically. Because they would know him best? Okay. And they saw, I guess, where he was headed. You can't necessarily tell exactly where he's going in the still image. Okay. But it seems like he headed down Scott Place Alley. So that third map there at the bottom, that's just kind of like a crude little path that he probably took that little green square where it starts is cat's plaza and then he goes up the scott place alley towards um duquesne boulevard that's that big road that he has to cross to get to the bridge and i was asking my sister if it would be hard to cross duquesne boulevard like a highway at that time of night and she said there's places to cross it's not really any more dangerous than you know any other place in the city so because i was thinking it was like a really busy area and i'm like if he was drunk like how did he not get hit by a car if he has to cross that big highway but you know it's not a crazy thing to think that he crossed to go over to the bridge yeah and if it's where i think it is i'm pretty sure there's multiple um like four-way stoplights mm-hmm. with pedestrian crossing zones yeah if it's if my memory of driving in pittsburgh is properly aligning with the map which i may just be totally wrong but <laughs> i'm pretty sure there's a a good amount there um because of students at the college that are crossing the road to go into the city right so There's no video surveillance showing that Dakota crossed any of the bridges. Now, to get home, he most likely would have crossed the uh, Roberto Clemente Bridge. The 7th Street Bridge, which was the straightest shot from where he was, was closed to pedestrians at the time. So the Roberto Clemente, I have a mark there on the second map. It's the one furthest to the left that he probably would have taken to get home. That middle one in that group of three, that's the Andy Warhol slash 7th Street Bridge. And that's the one that was closed to pedestrians, which is why he didn't just go kind of straight onto the bridge. He had to take a left right. and cross Duquesne that way. Um, but there's really no evidence that he made it even onto that bridge. There are surveillance cameras, but like I said, there's ones on the other side that would have caught him leaving the bridge, and there's no physical evidence to show that he was ever on the bridge at all. Right. Weird. Yeah. This We keep... It's definitely a pattern, and it'll be a continuing pattern because it happens in the case that I've been looking at lately, too, of just people vanishing in thin air. Yeah. Like, that's been a a definite theme with us lately. We've seen a lot of that. That's crazy. Yeah. And so the last place he was seen on a camera was in that Cats Plaza. After he left the alley and then took a left, there is there was a surveillance camera there, but it was filled with water, apparently, and not functioning, which is kind of creepy that it was filled with water. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunately, close to the water. it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I know. But yeah, so nothing caught him after that. That's why people say that he probably went this way, but there's really nothing right. to prove it. So Dakota did not show up for work the next day, which was Thursday, January 26th. A coworker called him, but got no answer. And they, you know, didn't think too much of it. They were just like, you know, probably thought maybe he was hungover or sick or, you know, your coworker doesn't show up. It happens. But then the next day, Friday, the 27th, 
he didn't show up again. So Dakota's boss called Dakota's apartment manager. And when the manager could not get a hold of Dakota, the manager called Dakota's parents. And obviously, they were super worried and they were actually about to go on vacation. Dakota was actually going to meet them. It was at another place in Maryland, but they were like packed and ready to go. And then they get this call. So they went straight to Pittsburgh instead. So on the way, Pam, she does not waste any time. She pulled Dakota's cell phone records. So I'm guessing in order to do that, they were all on the same plan. That's what I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So she pulled those records and any of the numbers that showed up that repeated pretty frequently to show that they were probably someone he knew, she was texting them like, hey, when's the last time you saw Dakota? Do you is he with you? So she smart did not waste any time. So then they get to Pittsburgh and this is where it starts to get very frustrating. Pittsburgh police made them wait until Saturday the 28th to file a missing persons report. So he the last time he was seen was Wednesday evening and they had to wait until Saturday to file a report. And I'm sure like, you know, you're not fully staffed on weekends anyway. So they were able to file that report on Saturday. I wonder what their staffing looks like if they were even able to do much other than, you know, search parties and such. Yeah. Throughout that weekend. Yeah. It seems like potentially a lot could have been lost. It's hard to say, but we'll definitely get into that then. But that had to be so frustrating, especially for Pam that like jumped on this right away. I mean, both of his parents, but um, to have to wait like that. Obviously, they did not sit around and wait for the police. As soon as they got to Pittsburgh, they began looking around the places. They knew that Dakota had been seen on Wednesday night and they followed paths she may have taken. And they were just all over the place. Search parties were formed. um, And eventually, of course, they could file the report. Police got involved. Dive teams searched the river in February and absolutely nothing was found. So about six weeks later, so six weeks No sign of him at all. On Monday, March 6th, 2017, around 8.45 a.m., Dakota's body was found by a civilian in the back channel of the Ohio River near the 4600 block of Royal Avenue in a suburb. Dakota's body was recovered by Robinson Township Swift Water Rescue Teams. He was found completely clothed and with his ID. So they pretty much knew right away who he was. Actually, even the, um, the woman that found his body... They had been following the story and she basically knew by his clothing, by the clothing description, that that's who it was. So that's very sad. I mean, that's good. That's why we give the descriptions. Right. So that they can be identified, but you just never be the one that has to identify it. Yeah, exactly. She was like, please don't let this be him. Please don't. Like, I don't know if she could quite remember what he was wearing, but then she asked another friend who was closely following the case. She was like, oh, was he wearing like a red shirt, etc.? And they were like, yeah. So she notified the police and then... I guess his body was still kind of floating a little bit. So she kind of followed it along the river just so she wouldn't lose track of it. So his parents identified him by his foot and they were told that they weren't allowed to view the rest of his body. Yes. (laughs) Does he have a very distinctive foot? Like, I mean, I've got tattoos on my feet. So if something happened, you know, like my family or my husband would recognize my tattoos. But like, was there something specific about his foot that made that? I can't quite remember. He may have had a tattoo. Um, Okay. 
But either way, they were able to positively say, and I guess they didn't really need too much of an identification because his ID was on him. And as we'll talk about, his body was very well preserved. So he still looked like himself. It was just... I mean, yeah, this was January, February. Yes. So cold. Pittsburgh's always colder than the rest of the state, too. Absolutely. There was very little decomposition. I'm sure that comes up in theories later, too, but... It does. (laughs) My ADHD brain wanted to bring it up now. Yeah. But either way, that's all they would let the parents look at. And Pam deeply regrets not pushing back on this more. She says in the documentary that I watched, she's like, I didn't know that it was my right as a parent to view him because I know sometimes they don't necessarily want the parents to have that as their last image of their child. So they're very cautious. And it's like, do you really want to see your child like this? But I think ultimately the parents need to make that decision. And it seems like legally they are allowed to make that decision. It's just... I feel like it's one of those that the family makes the actual decision, but the Emmy or coroner or investigators or whoever had control at that time, you know, said, oh, I don't know if you want to see it. And just kind of verbally convinced the family to just not look. So not that they restricted it from them Mm -hmm. or like told them they couldn't, but just kind of maybe advised that, oh, you know, he was in the water. So... You know, there could be this and that and this and maybe just kind of talk them out of it so that it's still their decision. But I don't know. I don't want to speak badly of anybody, but sure. I just I think that that could be a possibility where it's just one of those things where people don't know their rights, like you said. Or it's just really that's a really bad time. They're, you know, going through a really hard time finding the body. And it's just a vulnerable time for them to take almost kind of know that they kind of won't push because they probably don't know. Right. She she said she even said she's like, I know I was numb at that time. And I really basically that she didn't really have the strength to advocate for herself almost because I mean, who who knows how to react to that? So I I totally understand. Well, not no, I don't. But you know what I mean? (laughs) Right. Understand the, the frame of thought. Yeah. Right. So that was kind of the beginning of the issues with the medical examiner also. But after being examined, his parents, Dakota's parents, did decide to have him cremated. And Pam really regrets this as well. I'm sure. And we'll definitely see why. But that's another thing. Like, it was kind of around the same time when she was numb and she just... right. You know, she didn't really have anyone showing her the way she did. People were very supportive for sure. Right. But having very few people who have gone through this, it's tough. But the problem with death is they're trying to make it a kind of like a fast paced thing. Like you can't just have a body sitting there indefinitely until you're ready or can process it. It's kind of like a pretty fast turnaround time unless like obviously the ME is still waiting on it, but if they already did their report for the family, like it's a pretty fast process to like, you know, bury them or cremate them or whatever they're doing with them. Yeah. And I would think especially with a body that's been submerged in water or, you know, even just out in the elements for an extended period of time that your window there is even a little bit different than a typical like natural causes death. Sure. So, it may even be faster. And I That's mean, 
if their whole if they would have had him cremated anyway if that's just maybe the way that they deal with family deaths that's Mm -hmm. that's their process once they get these answers or so-called answers from the medical examiner they're like oh you've looked at everything you need to look at everything's wrapped up in a bow why not just go ahead with what our family does instead of maybe having him like embalmed and buried that way I mean you just you don't think about it this their questions didn't come till later so fair enough that's just how it was unfortunately yeah absolutely so now we'll get into kind of the theory that the police had a press conference the press conference that was given when dakota's body was found and then the reactions of dakota's parents and family and also the city so just so you know some of the main players here steven zapala is the allegheny county da i should have double checked i don't know if he still is but he was at the time and this wasn't very long ago and dr carl williams was the medical examiner so During the press conference where investigators announced that Dakota's body had been found, they mentioned that the area where the body was found in the Ohio River had been checked previously, possibly the weekend directly before. Now, his body was found on a Monday. So it's possible that a couple days prior, this area was checked. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> but right. just and I'm really glad that I listened to the pod to um a podcast about this. This was I think this may have been a different podcast. I listened to a lot of different things, but it was kind of rewound and pointed out that it was quietly. This was pretty quietly asked like, hey, had you searched this area before? And whoever was giving the press conference kind of like leaned off to the side and like asked the question of another investigator. And they were like, yes, this was previously searched, um, possibly pretty recently. So I don't think that I would have caught that if someone wouldn't have pointed it out. So I'm really glad that I listened to that commentary. Side note, I did Google it and Zapala is still DA for Allegheny County. Thank you. So the official police theory is that Dakota walked down the Roberto Clemente bridge steps, which are to which are on the left side of the bridge, that he walked down the steps to pee in the river and accidentally fell in. And then that the current took him. He went through the Emsworth Dam down the Allegheny and ended up in the Ohio River. Now, as far as what... The ME found his blood alcohol content was 0.214. And now that could be slightly elevated due to decomp, but it's that's normally still fairly accurate. And he what we do know that he was drinking. However, his parents say that this doesn't explain him falling into the river. They say it wasn't like it was his first time drinking. He's 23. Um, on surveillance video that they saw, he was texting and walking. He wasn't falling down. And like, how did he... I wish I had a picture to show you of the steps leading down from the bridge, but you know, it's a good amount of steps. And how did he navigate that and not fall, but then fall into the river? I don't know. To me, it's just like accidents happen all the time. People who don't even drink, fall, slip, hurt themselves. I mean, you're, if it is, if he did go down there, it's freaking wet. It's slippery. Even if you're not drunk, it could be hard to catch yourself. And what if he hit himself going down? It's hard to regain your whereabouts if you're hurt or if you're struck and if you like just a second 
too much it could like in the water it's hard to regain your composure i don't know even if he wasn't drunk it's questionable i don't i don't agree with that statement yeah it's definitely possible and um the only thing is if he had fallen and hurt himself and then fell in there would be if he first of all if he had fell off the bridge or the steps he would have broken bones because it's pretty high up there but even if he fell and like hit his head or anything he didn't have any injuries bruises broken bones even after being in the river his body was found in like pristine condition so basically he he definitely could have slipped and fell in i i agree with that but like apparently he did not hurt himself before that i don't know i'm just confused how does it work like he i would assume if he did fall in he probably died pretty fast thereafter uh does bruising work the same if you're already dead in a cold area because when you do get like a bruise that's bad like hematoma the first thing you're supposed to do is put cold something cold on it to help with the bruising and stuff like that so would there be a bruise i think there would still be evidence of a bruise like not necessarily like a big purple one and i don't want to sound like an authority because i'm certainly not but i think they would have expected to see something especially if it was significant trauma i guess like if he really hit something there would be evidence of it but they just didn't find anything like that it was basically like what they saw was a clear-cut drowning so their theory is that yeah he just slipped and fell straight into the water and drowned do we know from an autopsy report if there was water in his lungs like was it was it deemed that drowning was his cause of death? So how it was explained was, and obviously this will be in very simple terms, so I'll try my best, but there was water in the lungs, but not necessarily water in like his esophagus area, which doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't drown. There doesn't have to be water in that area. Right. But we'll talk about another med- medical examiner that took a look at it, okay. at least at the photos in the report. And it gives some area for doubt, I guess. Okay. But you don't necessarily need to have water found in your esophagus area to have it be a drowning. So, But I guess that calls into question, like, did water get in his lungs because he was submerged in the water for so long, I guess that's, right. but you know, it's, cause I mean, air is going to try to find any way to come out. So that's, I'm just wondering, I don't know. I was just curious if we knew, but yeah. Yeah. His parents were only given the written autopsy report. So no photos of the autopsy or recovery just the written report. So that'll come back up again. But Dakota's computer was searched by police, but was returned to his parents without comment. So they did, you know, do their investigation. Dakota's parents didn't think that it was an aggressive enough investigation, but, you know, they did seize this computer. They did look at that stuff. They just didn't, they said they didn't find anything. So his parents said that the police did not prioritize Dakota's case. They believe if police had been more responsive, more evidence could have been found. I believe it was retired detective Kevin Gannon, who we'll talk about in a second, that said, treat the case as a homicide first and then work backwards so you don't lose important evidence instead of doing it the other way around and then thinking, oh, no, this might be a homicide. 
and then evidence is lost. So like Pam said, she told the police about an inside surveillance video at 941 Saloon. And that's the one where apparently Dakota got in a verbal altercation with the bartender. Um, But by the time police looked into it, it had been recorded over, which sounds like a big oversight and like that really sucks. But to give the other side, detectives said that inside surveillance wasn't super important. They were confident in the verbal witness accounts they had gathered. And remember, this was not the last bar that Dakota was in. It was images. That was the last place he was. So they're confident in the witness statements. And Michael Fuoco from the podcast was like, well, you got their statements about what Dakota was doing, but what about what other people in the bar were doing? And the detective said, "Um, we have nothing to suggest that anyone followed him from this bar. So they just weren't super concerned that they didn't have the footage from inside. So that's where that stands. So police refuse to speculate on theories or what may have occurred. So, yeah, there's all these theories out there that Dakota was actually murdered and it wasn't an accident, but they can only base their investigations on hard evidence. But, you know, it has been agreed that if someone, say, just pushed Dakota in, there wouldn't really be too much evidence. So that's hard, you know, but I don't think anyone on either side really thinks that someone kind of came up behind him and just pushed him like that just doesn't seem very likely if someone was gonna throw him in the river it seems like there would be signs of like a struggle and someone grabbed him and like drug him closer to the river it just doesn't seem like and that seems like it may have to be a crime of opportunity even for someone to be waiting down there and then just push someone in who's like maybe peeing in the river it just Or, I mean, just be following him from enough of a distance. And then, you know, we did talk about he was very drunk, as we saw from the, you know, alcohol, his his blood alcohol level. But also just the fact that, you know, it might take him a little bit longer to get down the stairs. I mean, we did see on that one video, like he was walking and texting normally and and all that. But like, when you have to take steps and depth perception into account, it can throw everything off. So maybe someone was following him, he was walking down the stairs really slowly, it allowed someone else that chance to kind of get down to him faster. So I mean, there is that possibility there and there might not have been a fight for that same reason if he just wasn't paying attention it's dark and someone pushes you and you know if that's what happened then you just fall in and if you can't get yourself out you're just stuck yeah i will say that you know my sister has said that there's a large homeless population down there Mm -hmm. and like i'm not pointing the finger at like homeless people in general but a lot of them you know do drugs and you know there could have been someone that was high say and did yeah you know was acting in that frame of mind it's it's just possible very true very true yeah so dr williams who was the me ruled dakota's death an accident so that was the manner of death was accidental and the cause was drowning and he is confident in that ruling, he said that he would consider changing the manner of death if new evidence is presented, but he just doesn't expect that to happen, which is interesting that he said that as we get further along here. While Dakota's family was still searching 
for him before Dakota's body was found. They offered a $10,000 reward. And Pam was very active on social media about it. The city and surrounding areas were very supportive. Both individuals and businesses offered what they could. I mean, people were feeding them. They were, you know, giving them support and searching for Dakota. It was just, I don't want to say silver lining, but it was just kind of heartwarming to see how much everybody stepped up. And Dakota wasn't from Pittsburgh. He was, they call him a transplant, but, um, right. You know, they really stepped up for him. Jeff, who is Dakota's father said that Dakota was too trusting. And I think both of his parents think that him being gay had something to do with it. And Pam in particular thinks it was straight up hate crime, but they also kind of started off once he came out they were already nervous so i don't if they were already in that frame of mind right almost like an i told you so sort of thought process i don't know i feel like hate crimes are not just like a fast opportunist opportunistic thing they taunt you they hurt you i mean a lot of the hate crimes that i heard about i mean the victims are literally brutalized And he wasn't really from there unless he's like screaming out every five seconds, I'm gay. I mean, really, for like someone who's opportunistic and it doesn't seem like this was a set schedule, not like he's going out getting trashed every Wednesday, going to the same set of bars. So not someone that's like tracking what he does. I don't know. To me, that's a reach unless there was like evidence for it. Like, yes, it's a possibility. There are tons of people that are, you know, just awful human beings and have prejudices for stupid reasons. But that's just like a huge reach, I think. Yeah, I think plus when it's a hate crime, I a lot of the time, whoever killed them or hurt them really wants to call out what was so-called wrong with the victim and will kind of I don't know, try to embarrass them even in death or you would expect maybe like graffiti with like slurs or something, something like that to really, I don't know. That's just what I mean, especially 2017. I mean, you'd think that there would be some sort of even something that was like put in his pants pocket or like, you know, that they'd put a T-shirt on with you know, whatever message or yeah, whatever, like it, it, it seems like there would be more. And I think on top of all of that too, when I think of hate crimes, often there's that element of suffering along with like, um, uh, sorry, grace, like you said, with the public message, it's often more, I guess, suffering, like There's I can't like imagine it would just to it almost at That's least a like good the, word. the yeah. big one. Like I think of like Laramie and just how it's so like brutal and they want you to see this person suffering. So, right. Yeah, so I mean, it it's, just, I it's, feel like there would be more of that. It's certainly it. possible. It just doesn't necessarily. Yeah. Chelsea's right. Kind of fit for me either. Yeah. So obviously Pam and Jeff do not believe this was an accident um, and they were very disappointed with the Pittsburgh police. So they kind of gathered their own private investigation team. And that included um, Kevin Gannon, who's a retired 
uh, New York City police detective. And that's exactly what he sounds like. There's a couple of these retired New York police detectives like throughout like the documentaries and everything. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're <laughs> you're definitely you an like NYC detective. detective. Um, and he actually wrote a book, Case Studies in Drowning Forensics. And he is one of the original detectives that put together the theory of the smiley face killers. Um and then we also have Dr. Cyril Wecht. So he is the chair of the Cyril H. Wecht Institute of Forensic Science and Law at Duquesne University. He's a former Allegheny County ME, and he's been involved in some very high profile cases such as the Kennedy assassination, the death of Elvis Presley and the John Bonet Ramsey case. So, so you know, a, a, a couple couple high credit cases there he has a lot of credit to his name and he's very intelligent but i mean he'll never listen to this he's the one that i said was very very difficult <laughs> to listen to him speak just i feel like that happens though so yeah. when people are very intelligent it can be hard for them to convey um yeah certain things um and they also hired private investigator larry Ferletta. So that was kind of their team that they had on their side. Steven Zapala, who is the DA, eventually agreed to hand over Dakota's entire file to the family, which included the autopsy photos, recovery photos. So that was a big win for them. And that's a big thing they talked about in the documentary. The family is basically trying to get the medical examiner to change the manner of death to at least undetermined and order to get the case opened back up because, you know, it was listed as accidental. It started as a missing persons case um, and had a missing persons team working on it. And then he was found and it was ruled accidental. So his case is closed. It's a missing oh. person. It wasn't a homicide case. It was a missing persons case and it was closed. So what they need the medical examiner to say is that actually this is undetermined. Yeah. So it can at least open everything back up. Is manner of death, manner of death has to be one of four things, right? Yeah. It's like accidental, natural, suicide, or homicide, or undetermined. Like, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Basically, everyone says there's no reason to suspect suicide. And I just have to say, like, is that ever 100% true? I don't know Dakota. It's hard to say for anyone. Right. But I'm just saying, is that ever 100% true? It's just... I don't think so. Yeah, it's, never, it's hard. Yeah, I'm with you. You will never know somebody. You'll never know what they're thinking or going through, even if they're even good communicators or even if you're around them 24-7. You'll just never know. Yeah. Yeah. Fully so agreed. I think it's worth it just to kind of put that out there. So as they are looking through this... Here's kind of what their private investigative team has to say. Detective Gannon said that he didn't think the body was decomposed enough when it was found to have been in the water for 40 days. But Dr. Wecht brought up that it was very cold and extreme cold will preserve a body. So, I mean, the air was cold. The water was cold. If you were if a body was in the water, warmish water for 40 days, you would expect it to be you know, composed and or decomposed right. and black. But 
Dakota's body was still very white, but it was very cold. So in the documentary, when Detective Gannon brought that up, Dr. Wecht was kind of like, well, I can't really get on board with that because it was so cold. So back to autopsy report, just a random thought. Did they say anything about stomach contents? I don't think so. Not not that I saw in my research. I did not see the actual autopsy report. So fair enough. My, my thought process in that is it might narrow down, you know, if he had like remnants of food that he would have ordered at bars that night or whatever point. The only reason I think of it is because the case that I've been researching, they specifically reference the stomach contents in creating a timeline. So I will say it's not an original thought, but that's interesting. Just curious if there's a link. Because remember, that that was brought up in the Jean Benet case. And Mm -hmm, Dr. Wecht has had worked on that case. So I wonder. True. I wonder what exactly came of that. Or do they always check that? Because we'll see that the medical examiner may have missed some. The original medical examiner, Dr. Williams, may have missed something. So maybe it's possible that he didn't even look. And then now that Dakota has been cremated, Dr. Wecht would have no idea. So there's that too. The team did call in a forensic computer expert who found this was part of the documentary. And they sat down with this computer expert who was looking at Dakota's computer and he found a PayPal transaction from two days after Dakota went missing. And everyone's like, what? Does that mean he still could have been alive? But it's PayPal. It could be hacked. It could be like a scheduled payment, something like that. It could that. be delayed. Like he yeah. went missing on a Monday, right? Wednesday. Wednesday, Wednesday evening. Wednesday. Okay. So, I mean, sometimes it just takes... A couple days for PayPal to hit out of the account. Yeah. And it really wasn't mentioned too much after that. And I hadn't seen it mentioned anywhere else. I just don't think that's a very strong piece of evidence. I mean, maybe if his credit card had been physically used somewhere, but this was a PayPal transaction. So it doesn't really make too much sense to me. And I could have probably like screen grabbed from the documentary. I couldn't... um, that's the only place I really saw these photos. And then I, I wasn't sure if that was something that I should post or not. It's just, it's his neck. It's nothing like graphic. I'm just saying like, it took a lot for them to get their fo- those photos. So I just didn't really feel right. right. But the autopsy photos show marks on Dakota's neck that weren't mentioned in the written autopsy report. So this is a big problem for me because these were very, these weren't faint marks. They were very dark. Uh, Dr. Wecht said it was a diffuse epidermal hemorrhage, basically ligature marks around his neck. So this was something that feels like that was very shocking. Yeah. Um, there were also marks where blood had pooled at the tips of Dakota's fourth and fifth fingers, consistent with trying to release pressure from a lig- ligature around the neck, like pooling. Yeah. So basically he would be like, like this and trying to release that pressure of something around his neck. Um, and none of this was noted in the written autopsy. So Hmm. that's a lot for me among this, all this kind of like other soft, maybe even circumstantial evidence. Like this was, this seemed really big. Well, that's even weird too, because 
isn't it the same team that does the written autopsy as who takes the photos? I would believe so. So it it seems weird if if it's this, you know, in my brain, everything's a conspiracy. But if it's this idea to try to cover up and specifically not point out that he had ligature marks on his neck, like, then why would you take pictures of it also? I don't. You know what I, I mean? don't remember like, where I heard this, and I don't know if it was actually written in the autopsy or just a response from the original medical examiner after this, but mm-hmm. basically that they weren't ligature marks. They were something else or like something that could be washed off. It was odd. It was an odd kind of response, like them basically saying like, no, we didn't recognize those as lig- ligature marks. That's why we didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. So. I'm not really sure what to make of that. And it's hard because I don't really have a background in that stuff. It's just when you show me a photo of these deep marks around the neck. Right. I'm going to believe you when you say they're ligature marks. So. And a photo can can be manipulated to look a certain way as well. If you're trying to make a specific point, you know, like within the documentary, not to say that they definitely altered, but you can. Little lighting changes can even affect the way sure. an image appears. So even settings on your TV or computer screen can change the way it appears. So maybe it's just that in the photo, it it looks so much different than yeah. it did on the, on the table when they were, you know, doing the official Absolutely. autopsy. So then something that Dr. Wecht said, and what I was kind of thinking when they showed videos of the river... I personally thought that the current didn't seem that strong. And Dr. Wecht had said, if he fell in, why couldn't he get back out? The Allegheny is pretty good for recreation. It's not super deep. Um, And he was a strong swimmer. He was a swim team captain at one point. And if he had fallen from the steps or the bridge, like I had said before, he would have broken bones. He would have been very, it would have been very, I'll have to show you guys a picture of the steps, but it would have been very obvious if he had fallen and incapacitated himself somehow. So, you know, if he just fell into the river, why couldn't he get back out? So according to my just like cursory research on the speed of water in the river and like the presence of strong undercurrents, it is possible that even as a strong swimmer, Dakota could have been overtaken and drowned because even if the current doesn't seem like it's going super fast up top, there can be much quicker undercurrents. So it's possible. It is. It's not crazy to think that even as a strong swimmer, he could have fallen in and very cold water can also incapacitate you. So I don't want to say that it's not possible. So you can definitely see if he fell from the bridge itself or the steps like it would it would have hurt. (laughs) Right. But there's no sign that he did. So but even if he entered the water, you know, yes, he was drinking. It is possible not saying that he did i'm just saying it is possible that he could have fallen in and drowned so it was 10 miles from where police believe he entered the water to the emsworth dam Um, and the current was moving very quickly past the dam which would so 10 miles from here to the dam after the dam it's moving very quickly and would have taken about 30 minutes for his body to get from the dam to the recovery site. The Ohio river is actually listed as one of the fastest in the United States. So very strong current, um, interesting 
that he was in the water for so long or that they say he was in the water for so long because this should have been a fairly quick trip. I mean, even in winter, and I I know we've talked about this with other cases before, even in winter, if you get, you know, like that top layer of ice or whatever, I mean, it takes a lot to freeze a river solid. Um, You know, we don't see that in Pennsylvania too incredibly often, but the water would still move underneath. So I can't imagine that if there was a layer of ice that was making anything move more slowly, that you wouldn't see a body being caught up by the ice like if he was just in there and stuck by ice i don't know it the the timeline is there's another issue too and someone else in the investigation brought it up and then my sister said it offhandedly she's like that is not a clean river there's so much crap in that river and then whoever else said like it's not a pristine river there's things in there so you could say potentially that he got caught up on something But the state that his clothing was in and that his body was in doesn't seem to match with him getting caught on something, caught under something. But if he didn't get caught on something, where was was he? he? And also, if he's flowing in a pretty fast current and the river's full of debris, where are any of the marks from him like running? And even if it would show up on his clothing, because... You know, I didn't see the recovery photos, but it seemed that the, the way they were talking, his clothing was in great condition, too. So how? If he's in the river with all of this right. debris. You'd think there would at least be snags on the clothing something. or something, if not discoloration or anything yeah. like that. And I have this somewhere on here, but the the group that recovered him, they were saying in the documentary they've recovered like a dozen bodies in such amount of time and he was in the best shape of any of the bodies that they'd recovered so that's very interesting that is really interesting were the the other recoveries were they long term i'm not sure like more than six weeks i'm not sure okay so the emsworth dam which he would have had to pass through in order to get uh where he was found it opens vertically uh and there are there are always some gates open but how open they are varies so on march 6th which is the day he was found and remember i said it would only take about 30 minutes to get from the dam to the recovery site the openings were a foot to two and a half feet depending on the section so there was a very disturbing animation on the documentary that showed that like it wasn't graphic it was just like disturbing because it's this animation of like a body kind of like bumping up against the dam and how it would be hard for it to just go through unscathed um into these small openings there's a guy on youtube that does recreations in like a digital sort of program where it like shows people and things like it sounds kind of like what you're describing and it's when i see his videos with that i'm always a little like ugh. Like, I get it. Yeah. It's, it's helpful, but it's really weird to watch this. Now, the openings were much wider the week prior, up to like seven plus feet. Uh, but if he would have gone okay. through sooner, why wasn't he spotted sooner? And especially once he goes through the dam and he's in the Ohio River and it's the current is very fast, I just think it would be less right. likely for him to get caught up on something just because everything is moving so quickly. Sure. That makes so sense. that's just... 
the question that I have. Like, where was he if he had gone through before that? Yeah. There are locations below the dam where cars could easily go and a body could be dumped. That's something that um, the private investigators had mentioned. And like I said, the recovery team doesn't think that the body traveled very far due to the condition that it was found in. So it it would seem more likely due to the position or sorry, condition that someone had dumped it after the dam. And I mean, someone that might know the area would probably know, you know, oh, there's three rivers here, but this one is unobstructed by a dam and is the fastest moving. So if they you know, did something to him and then they were just dropping the body. It would make sense in a psychopathic sort of way. It would make sense to say, oh, let me choose the fastest moving river, especially because you're so close to the state lines. I mean, you're so close to West Virginia, so close to Ohio that and you're not far from Maryland Mm -hmm. that if you you know, get the body to the right spot, you're not going to know what state to start in and it's going to hinder investigation, which That's is going to help you. I'm a little terrified that I'm having this Me thought too. I'm process. not coming over anymore, um, probably. But, um, I mean, I wouldn't ever actually do it, but I can kind of see the the thought process of, well, maybe this is kind of how they did get away with it because they put him in such a fast-moving body of water. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, So after the private team came up with, you know, these items, Pam met with Stephen Zappala in October 2018. And there was also apparently an FBI agent and Secret Service agent present. I don't know if that's like standard procedure. I have no idea. But it's something she mentioned. Um, But they all seem to agree with Dr. Weck's findings and agreed to speak to Dr. Williams, the M.E., Uh, about it but dr williams would not meet with pam or take a second look uh, and the da cannot move forward without the medical examiner's decision to look into it again so zapala ended up sending them a message a few months later that said he can't assist them at this time his hands are tied basically right yeah and it's interesting to note that in the documentary The private team was to meet with the police department for a video recorded meeting, but the police backed out at the last minute and they issued a statement. They sent an email, an official email, saying that they couldn't meet because this was an ongoing criminal investigation. So up until then. So did they change the manner of death? So up until this point. It's been assumed that it was a closed missing persons case. To everyone's knowledge, that's what it is. And then the police department said they can't talk about it because it's an ongoing criminal investigation, which was just shocking. Oh, that's sketchy. She's like, I don't understand. Pam was like, I don't understand this at all. So Pam and Jeff held a press conference along Gannon and Wecht, um, you know, to try to basically get the media's help on this because no one... It's not that no one wants to help. D.A. Zapala, you know, he agreed with them and he basically did what he could. But as far as the medical examiner, they were just very, very frustrated. So they held a press conference and they just they don't think the police did their job. Uh, They say they tried to stay out of the police's hair for a while. So they weren't, you know, bugging them. They were trying to let them do their job. But then they said they realized nothing was being done. 
they said the police could have been much more aggressive and they felt like they were always tracking the police down for more information. So, and that's got to be hard too because you've got these opposite reports coming to you. Yeah. Like the fact that, you know, they're saying, oh, well, no, it's a closed case because it's just an accidental death as the resolution to a missing persons case. But then they're also not giving them information, which you would think from a closed case as the family, you would be able to get that information. So it's, there's those mixed signals too. And that would, I mean, especially from the way that it sounds like, you know, Pam hopped right into everything. I'd be freaking pissed too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, will say just for fairness's sake there were some um responses about how they felt that they were treated by the police so commander victor joseph says that missing persons detectives put their hearts into their work and try to communicate with families the best they can he says sometimes they just don't have all the answers uh, and they have to go where the evidence takes them and they can't base their investigation on internet theories and things like that and da zapala agrees Zapala actually wrote letters to the police departments to make sure victims' advocates were being utilized in missing persons cases and not just, you know, homicide cases. He says the family's opinions are the only ones that actually count, and the justice system has clearly failed them in that way, and they need to do better, which is really refreshing to hear. I I definitely appreciate the idea of I'm in this system, and I know that there are things wrong with it. Mm-hmm. and. Like, I mean, I feel that hardcore, but I love it's very refreshing to see that in this whole process. He does say that as far as the investigation goes, he didn't see any red flags. He feels that it was professionally undertaken. And, you know, he's proud of what the detectives did. So, you know, there's a little bit of a difference in opinion there. Well, he does say they do need to take better care of the families. He said the investigation was fine, basically, and they did what they could. Well, and until you have a solid answer that you truly believe you're as the family, you're never going to feel like other people are doing enough. Exactly. So there's a little bit of that bias that's always going to come in from the family as well. Yeah, exactly. And it's just Dakota's family they just want answers, whatever conclusion that leads to. So they just, there's so much unknown. And even if it was an accident, they don't, they just want to know exactly what happened. And that might not be possible, but you know, they're pushing because maybe the police could have done more. So it's a very complicated situation for sure. And there are People, including obviously Detective Gannon, who I mentioned is a big part of this work, that think that Dakota's death was part of the smiley face killer phenomenon. But this has been a very long episode. So I'm definitely going to wait until next episode to really talk about that. Dakota's case in particular is also mentioned often um, in conjunction with the drowning death of Paul Kochu, who I'm going to talk about next episode, my next episode as well. So we'll kind of get into the smiley face killer theory and see where that leads us. As far as I know, Dakota's case closed. But if you do have any information, there is a finding answers for Dakota James Facebook page. So that may be somewhere that you can 
submit any information you have. I'm not exactly sure how active it is anymore. There is a lot of spam on that page. Um, so I'm, I'm just not 100% sure where to go with that information, but you can absolutely try there. But that's all I have for Dakota. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins. Production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.